Welcome to the Master Your Mix podcast, helping engineers, producers, and artists create professional recordings and mixes, even from home. I'm your host, Mike and Davina. Let's get started. Hey guys, Mike and Davina here, and thank you so much for listening. Today's episode is one that I am really, really excited for you to dig through because I think this may be one of the most important episodes that I've had on the show so far. If you're someone who's looking to take your mixing skills or your your engineering skills and you're looking to make a career out of it, or maybe you're just looking to make some extra side money, but you're not quite sure how to build your business, what you can do to bring in new customers, or how to maybe go online and attract new customers there, This episode is going to answer a lot of those questions and it's going to steer you in the right path. My guest today really knows what he's talking about and he dropped some amazing knowledge bombs in this episode. So I'm really excited for you to dig through this. But before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly thank each and every one of you for listening to this podcast. We're now at 29 episodes, and every time I release a new one, people always send me emails telling me that they learned a ton from the episodes or that they really enjoyed it. And I just get all these great emails of people that are getting impacted by this podcast. And that's what this is all about. I want you guys to learn a lot of great information from it and take a lot of the information that my guests and myself share on here and apply it to your skills. And and I love to hear that there's so many of you that take action. So I just wanted to say thank you so much. And if you've been enjoying these episodes so far, I would appreciate it if you could do one quick favor for me. Can you please go onto the iTunes store and leave a rating and a review? If you're not sure how to do that, visit masteryourmix.com forward slash review, and that will walk you through the entire process. By leaving a rating and a review, it allows people to realize that this podcast is worth listening to, and it helps to spread the word so that I can help out more engineers much like yourself learn to develop their skills, grow their businesses, and make a bigger impact in this world through music. So once again, if you can leave a rating and a review on iTunes, it would be very much appreciated. And as a bonus, if you do leave a review, take a screenshot of it, and if you email me at info at and you include that screenshot in your email, I will send you a free exclusive secret download. All you got to do is just email me at info at masteryourmix.com. So now let's get into today's episode. Today's guest is none other than Chris Graham. If you're not familiar with Chris, Chris is an amazingly talented mastering engineer who is based out of Columbus, Ohio, and he runs his website, chrisgrammastering.com. And he has built a six-figure studio business from this online website. So he knows a few things about how to attract customers and find new leads and bring them in and convert them and nurture them and have them come back time and time again. So we definitely get into a lot of conversation about how to start up a studio business and how to get going online and bring in new people and how to run a successful six-figure studio business. So like I said at the very beginning, I think that this episode is one of the most important episodes that I've had so far in terms of helping you grow your business and really take the talents that you have and push them even further. So let's not waste any more time. Let's just jump right into the interview. Chris Graham, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here, man. I'm excited to hang out with you today. Awesome, man. So for people who might not know your story and how you got into mastering, can you give us a little bit of that background? Yeah, so my story, um, when I was in college, I 
found out that you could major in audio production, which meant that you could record yourself for free. And I was like, wait, I'm a musician. I, if I major in this, I won't have to pay anyone to record my music anymore. And that was that was really it. That was the entire reason like I got into audio. I, I've always loved audio. I've always been fascinated by speakers and EQ and recording and the whole nine yards. Anything that made noise as a kid, I was just like fascinated by. And so a big part of that was my uncle was a musician. And when I turned like 13 or 14, he showed up on my birthday. He loaned me something for my birthday. And he loaned me a giant PV console slash amplifier. It was like this ridiculous 1980s. It seriously weighed like maybe 300 pounds. And he put it, brought a speaker, brought the amp slash mixing board, and just let me play with it in the basement for like two years. That changed my life. So I like figured out how to like use EQ and like signal flow and all this stuff. So when I got to college, decided to major in audio, uh, I was like a singer songwriter. Um, so I would go to coffee shops or play shows and I'd play songs I made up for people and eventually started using a lot of audio gear as well. So looping pedals and different effects. And I was really lucky in that this is like 2001, 2002. It was at the very end of people still being willing to buy an entire CD if they liked one song that you did. So it was a really, really lucrative time to be like this independent self, you know, DIY-ish type musician. So I hired like a friend of mine to do a record. We made a CD. It was really cheap. It was like 800 bucks. So like really stripped down, printed out. I got a credit card, my first credit card, and uh, used the credit card to get the CD manufactured. And my grandpa, this was like a really big moment for me, but my grandpa was like, don't do it, Chris. And my grandpa was like really successful. He's like a millionaire, built a business from scratch, knows his stuff. He was like, don't do it, Chris. Don't take don't take that risk. Don't put it on a credit card. And it was like a, a really big moment for me, like becoming a man, because I stood up to him. I was like, grandpa, you just need to accept that I know my market better than you do. And he was like, oh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah, boy. And uh, so it was like, I didn't know any better, but that was the right thing to say. Got a bunch of CDs printed up, started selling them and broke even on the day I released it. That's amazing. It was awesome. So it like infected me where I was like, all right, music's the way you make money. And uh, I I didn't realize that that wasn't maybe totally true, but (laughs) I was like really lucky. And so anyways, I took, I paid off the CD um, and then I started selling a, you know, a bunch of my, you know, tour mostly like East Coast and play like like Young Life camps. I don't know if anyone knows about Young Life, but it was like it's like a Christian like kid a camp but not for Christian kids and so I would like go and play these shows. I'd like, you know, go out for a weekend as a college kid. I'd sell like you know 180 CDs. I'd drive home and like it was just me, so it was all it's pure profit. So I took all that money, bought recording gear, started producing other singer-songwriters. So basically, I'd record a song on my own. I'd say, hey, look what I made. And they'd say, hey, can you make something for me? And I would say, oh, absolutely. And uh, would basically, I would do these, like my first record was like the first record that was ever a full record, that with like full band that I did. I didn't even have the gear yet. I like made the sale. Somebody hired me. I convinced them to hire me, and then I took their money, their down payment, and went out and bought like more preamps and stuff. I did so the exact I, same thing when I first oh, started. That's too. awesome. <laughs> but it it was great because it was like, all right, Chris, you took the money, you made some purchases. Now you better figure this out. Yep. And 
obviously, you know, nobody does a great job on their first record, but it was a heck of a learning experience. And uh, it really motivated me to like learn. Oh, this is such a bad choice, but I, I chose Digital Performer as my DAW. And it's like the least popular DAW you can get that's older than like five years old. I right used now. Cool Edit Pro. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> taking me back. That was actually my, my first like. Let's be honest. Nobody paid for Cool Edit Pro no. back in the day. It was all pirated. So, like, my first software was Cool Edit Pro, and then I pirated Digital Performer. <laughs> and then, as soon as I uh, my second project, I paid I paid for Digital Performer. So I like used it for a little while, uh, and then paid it off. Definitely, I'm not pro pirating at all now. I don't pirate anything. Haven't for fifteen or twenty years. So I think the statute of limitations has expired on that. Suck it, government. <laughs> and uh, so anyways, uh, back. So, yeah. So uh, let me kind of get myself back to my point here. So, yeah, I started making records for people, mostly singer songwriters. And like I would basically like create a band for them. So I would like figure out who their favorite artists were, figure out who played on their favorite artist records and contact these musicians, drummers, bass players, guitar players, et cetera. And then I'd make like a dream package for my clients and say, hey, I know you're a fan of XYZ musician. I know his drummer and his bass player because I just reached out to them on Facebook <laughs> and got them to give me a quote. And uh, I can put this all together. We'll go, we'll record scratch tracks here at your house probably. Like I'll set up at your house or you'll come to like my house. And then we'll go on to Nashville or wherever. Um, we'll record tracks with them. We'll come back. We'll finish the record. And... I didn't know it, but I was like the worst producer ever because I was, my like production history was mostly related to me. Like my philosophy as a producer was related to my, to my philosophy as an athlete, which was, I was like a pole vaulter and a cross country and a 800 meter uh, track guy was like my favorite thing in high school. And so my thought was if you want people to do a better job, just be really mean to them. And just be like, you could do better than that. Get back in there and do another vocal take. And just that's not the, that's not a good production style in the singer songwriter genre. It might be in like heavy metal <laughs> or something. And uh, but so even still, it, you can definitely shoot down somebody's ego and make them like absolutely loathe you by the end of the session. And I was so good at that. <laughs> <laughs> and so I didn't know it, but I was like not a good producer um, because I had a lot of social skill issues. Um, in that, like, I just approached motivating. I approached like getting the best out of an artist in just a really terrible way. Mm -hmm. But I was really good at the tech side of things. So like I could sit down and figure out anything I wanted to pretty quickly from a tech side. So um, some of my clients uh, would eventually run out of money and then we would have to like finish the record and there was no rec there was no budget for a mix engineer, there was no budget for a mastering engineer, so I would have to do everything. So that the record would get released, so that my future clients would hear it, so that I would get more projects. And like this was like the silliest thing in the world because when you're like, oh, I'm going to fake the mastering and it's not going to be as good as it could, but whatever, like that affects you don't get more projects by releasing subpar projects. You get more clients by releasing awesome projects that people are like, wow, how do you do that? That sounds amazing. I want my record to sound like that. Air quotes. Yep. And that's like the way that you grow a production company. And I didn't do that right. And I ended up mastering a lot of my my clients' projects. And it turned out I was good at it. 
And so I started reaching out to other producers and saying, hey, you know, can I remaster a record you've already released? That was awesome because I would have like the master that, that had been released and then I would try to do a better job. And it was great because I would, you know, do these masters for my friends that were producers and they all came back and were like, holy crap, you're so much better than our current mastering engineer. We're going to use you from now on. And I basically just did that a lot. And then eventually um, I noticed, I really feel like as you're, you're building a business in audio that ultimately, or in music or whatever, you have to listen to what people are telling you. And if everyone's like, oh, dude, that slow song that you did was amazing, then do more slow songs. Or, oh my gosh, when you mix, it's so great. But you're producing and you're tracking and you're the drummer and all that thing. You have to listen to what people are like freaking out about. And that's your niche. Mm-hmm. That's where you should go. And that's what happened with me in mastering is that I would, the feedback I would get when I mastered other people's records was just like 5X the positivity of anything else I did. And so it just was natural to sort of lean into that. And, you know, for me, I, I uh, my wife had a teaching job, so I could afford to take risks. She was making a great living. This is like boy, 12 years ago or 11 years ago or something. And uh, so I like decided I'm just going to stop taking any projects that aren't mastering, which was crazy. Um, I definitely should have like slowly leaned into it more. But as, as it worked out, um, there was this, uh, this friend of mine that was a, a local producer that invited me over to the studio, and they were tracking a record for this guy, John Rubin. John Rubin at the time was like had historically one of the, the number one Christian rappers in the world, and, uh, which is weird. Like I'm, I like, have a weird background in that I was like born and raised Catholic, and then I became an atheist, and then I became a Christian again much <laughs> later in life. So like Christian music is... I hated it as an atheist and I'm still like navigating that <laughs> as, <laughs> as a Christian. And anyways, so uh, it was this amazing opportunity and I'm like sitting in the studio hanging out with them and they had just gotten masters back. They're like, gosh, we hate these masters. They sound so bad. And I was like, uh, uh, I, I'm a mastering engineer. Can I try? And they're like, yeah, sure. And so I mastered for them and uh, had like the references of like masters that they didn't like. And I made something they did like. It was that that was that was that simple. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is great. So that was like my first big portfolio piece. And I just booked tons and tons of projects off of that. Oh, I skipped a big part of my story. When I decided to go full time as a mastering engineer, my mentor had always told me, you know, you you could do this for a living. You're really good at this. He was a producer. He's one of the first guys I did samples for. Or first guys I like mastered one of those records that he'd already released for. And I was always like, yeah, right, no way, There's, that's impossible. How would I get enough clients to do this full time? And one night um, I was talking to my wife and we were, I don't know, I don't remember how it came up, but the thought was, well, I could never be a full-time mastering engineer because people don't even really know what mastering is. It's so mysterious, mm-hmm. it's so weird. And I had this idea of like, well, what if I had a, a website and there was like a player and you would select the genre of music you wanted to hear a sample of and then you could hit before and after back and forth in real time, and it would basically just switch back and forth between a mastered and unmastered version. This doesn't sound that exciting now because everyone does that. But at the time... At the time, nobody had done this yet. It was definitely the first guy to do this. So when I put that player on the website, people would go to the website and be like, oh, I see what he does. Yeah, that sounds way better. Cool, awesome. I'll hire him. And I started running all kinds of Google ads. So I started doing a ton of paid advertising. And 
the idea was just like show them what I do, give them a free sample, and just promote the heck out of let me do one song as a sample for you. And I'll show you that I'm decent at this because of the before and after player. And it just exploded. It was just this like massive, ridiculous, like, holy crap, uh, 20 people want me to do a sample today. And I like really quickly had like a miniature breakdown <laughs> and was like, I'm, I'm not, I'm still really poor and I'm like good at this. But at the same time, like I can't keep up with the demand here. And I was booking projects, and it was awesome. Like, strangers are hiring me. Um, but I'll, I'll remember it really clearly. I was sitting right where I'm standing right now. And my wife had picked up a book for me at the library called The 4-Hour Workweek um, that a friend had recommended. And it had sat behind me for three months collecting late fees. And I was like, you know what? F this, dude. Like, I can't – this isn't working. I can't take it. I need something. I'm going to turn to the – like. This is my last resort. I'm going to read a book. <laughs> and so I grabbed the book, went to a coffee shop down the road, and was like, I don't have time to read this whole book. I'll just skip to chapter five. That looks interesting. And like the book, four-hour work week sounds like a book for like scam artists. It's not. It's this amazing like reorientate how you think about work, reorientate about how you think about your own efficiency, and shed all the ego issues that are holding you back. And so I read chapter five, not to get like way too into it, but it talked about something called the 80-20 principle, which is this idea that 80% of your problems come from 20% of the stuff that you do, and 80% of your income comes from 20% of the things that you do. And the logical conclusion there is like, well, you, you need to stop doing some things and try to do, once you've stopped doing some things that are, you know, that 20% that creates 80% of your misery like that 20% of type of project or a certain client or tool that you use, like fire that, move on from that, and then you'll have more free time. Spend that time trying to duplicate the 20% of the things that you do that are creating 80% of your results. And like I read that and it was just like getting hit by lightning. It yep. was magical. And so I went home and retackled my business, long story short, built a real business with real systems and customer satisfaction went through the roof. I had way more free time. My work improved dramatically because it wasn't like I showed up and was like, Ugh, I'm miserable. I don't want to work 12 hours for the 10th day in a row. Like I would work reasonable hours, which means I would make better decisions, which means the masters were way better. And then when I would have a conversation with a client on the phone, which is like my favorite thing to do, I like talking to people. Yep. So this is a terrible terrible, terrible business to be in if you like talking to people because that's not what you do as a master engineer. <laughs> like you, you listen, not like talk. And anyways, like, so it's not a very relational business, at least traditionally. So all of a sudden, like once my business started to run well, once I started to figure out what the heck I was doing, there was all this opportunity to have conversations with clients and get a better idea of what they were going for, get a better idea of like their dreams and their hopes and stuff. And it just all of a sudden, like, the business is fun. Like, when I'm working for my mastering business, it's not work. It's a blast. It's like, I like to liken it to, you know, some people like to do crossword puzzles or Sudoku. That's what mastering is for me. It's just fun. I enjoy it. I, like, get giggly and excited when I, when, you know, when I show up for work each day. And uh, it's a blast. But it's only because I decided to, like, get my butt in gear and learn what, what a business, what business is. And mostly that's about, like, creating systems so that you can provide consistent 
awesome results and consistent, awesome customer service day in and day out, no matter what. That's amazing. I love that you told the story about reading the 4-Hour Workweek because I had a similar experience to it. And I, for years, I was like, I hate reading. Like, reading's for suckers. Same. And the first time I read a book, like, I think it might have been the 4-Hour Workweek. Actually, there was another book before that, which I'm almost ashamed to admit that was like a life-changing book for me. But it was this book called The Game. I don't okay. Know if, I don't know if you've ever heard of it. I, I haven't. It's a book about this guy who- Oh, wait. No, fought, I have. This is a, the pickup artist The pickup guy, artist right? one. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. man, that book changed my life. That book introduced me to the four-hour work week because, like, it was so much about like work on yourself and yeah. like accept that you're gonna get rejected and like put yourself out there and get into all these uncomfortable situations. And for me, that's what I needed at the time. And it wasn't even just to like meet women at that time. Like, it was like for me, it was like I just needed that. I had this like kind of like self-conscious yeah. issue, and then that. Once I read that book and kind of like started to implement some of the stuff, I like realized, you know what, the more I put myself out there, the more I see these results. And then the better, better my, my love life was going, the better my business was yeah. going. You know what I mean? <laughs> like, and, well, there's no stronger incentive than to uh, meet a significant other. So yeah, that'll definitely light a fire under your butt to yeah. self-improve. But so anyway, yeah, once I read the four hour work week after that, and that just kind of like spiraled me into this book world where like, Ugh. I realized the value in books now. And I think that that's so important. And we don't talk about that very much in audio. You know, we talk about like gear yeah. and whatever. And we're going to talk a lot about gear on this episode today. But like, you know, like, yeah, it, it's amazing how sometimes just shifting your mindset of how to approach things in life just alters your your future. Yeah, well, and it's a funny thing, like the the, you know, I'm I'm the same as you. I didn't really like reading, and like my wife wanted me to read, and it wasn't until I like, re started reading these self help business books where I was like, wait, whoa, whoa, whoa. So you're telling me books are actually educational, in a practical sense of like this could immediately help me with something, and it was just this like, <laughs> oh my gosh, like last place I would have thought I would have ever had any impact on my own life. So I just like formed this addiction. I've, I, I don't even five, six, seven, eight dozen business books I've read at this point. And it's just amazing to like pick up a book like that. And I use the term business books kind of loosely. They're basically, they're self-improvement books. Yeah. And you pick up a book like that. And even if there's one sentence that just like rocks your face off, it was totally worth 15 freaking dollars to buy that on Amazon. And like, I'm just obsessed with, with this concept because historically, like our country, America, are you in the US? I'm in know, Canada. Man. I'm in Toronto. Okay. Okay. Well, same thing. Same yeah. thing. When, when we got our independence from Great Britain, like back in the day, there was this push to, it was, called, it was a, a period of quote unquote enlightenment. And it was a totally normal thing to read for self-improvement. And it was the absolute bedrock of the United States being founded and freaking, freaking amazing. But then we go through phases in our society and in each country, I guess, where, where we're more focused on romanticism and less focused on enlightenment. And right now we're sort of swinging out of a romantic period and into an enlightenment period. And like YouTube is one of the harbingers of this. Of like you can get on YouTube and whatever you need to know, you know, like here's your drain plugged. Go on YouTube. Uh, <laughs> do you need to replace the water pump in your 1999 Jeep Wrangler? True story. Go on YouTube. <laughs> and like so, that's this amazing time of empowerment. But at the same time, the, 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 YouTube's great, but there is nothing 
that's more chocked full of amazing information than the right self-help book because the right self-help book was written by one of the like top dozen people in any given field because it, they can make a lot of money doing that. So to sit down with like a 180-page book from a, a world expert, I just read this book called uh, The One Thing, and I forget the guy's name, Gary, oh, what's his name? Anyways, he's like a, I don't know, 100 millionaire or billionaire or something like that. This dude like took everything he learned um, building one of the largest real estate, I think the largest real estate companies in the world, and wrote a book about it. And so you pay 12 or 13 or 14 bucks for this book, and it's like this incredible mentor yeah. that just walks you through, hey, this is what works and this is what doesn't about getting work done. And it's just this like, oh, unbelievable. So yeah, I'm just, this is like part of my obsession with our, with doing podcasting and with our podcast, The Six Figure Home Studio, is just trying to light a fire under people's butts to experiment with enlightenment, you know, to experiment with trying to self, to better yourself and read books because it's just this like, the coolest thing in the world is generating freedom, is for you to be able to do what you want, when you want, how you want. And the only way to do that is to get smarter. And the best, fastest, easiest way to do that is probably books, but also listening to podcasts. So, of course. Yeah. Yeah, the podcast or the new YouTube, in a way. Yeah. Oh, dude, copyright. <laughs> right. Yeah, you need to you need to trademark that. They are the new YouTube. Yeah. I, I I've been like preaching that. I really think the next decade is the decade of, of podcasting. It's it's the that, audiobook. Like we're we're gonna go back to like more people being deep into books, but the podcast is like the the audiobook-ish kind of transition yeah, back into it's like that. This, yeah, it's like a combination of YouTube and books, basically. Yeah. And yeah, I I really firmly believe that we're coming into this next decade is going to be podcast. Like we're going to look back and say that's when the podcast really started to grow because I don't know how many of you guys that are listening are listening on the Apple podcast app. It's like the most popular app there is. It's the worst app ever. <laughs> it's so bad. You can't see download numbers to see which is the most popular episode. You can't write a review on an episode. You can't comment. If you want to share, it's like three clicks buried deep into like how to even get it. There's just no way to create a community easily in the way that there is with like YouTube or Twitter or Instagram or any other social app out there. So podcasting really isn't social media yet. It's just new media. But once social media and podcasting collide, oh boy, oh, yeah. podcasts are going to grow so fast. <laughs> Yeah, awesome. So let's take it back a little bit. You were talking about, um, so you kind of just were working on projects and kind of got thrown to the wolves when it came to having to learn how to master. How did you learn to master? Because for so many people, mastering is this like dark art that people don't know like what it yeah. is. It's this mystery, right? And there's a lot of people who think that if you know how to use an EQ, a limiter, a compressor, then you essentially have the same tools as most mastering engineers. So what's the point in mastering, right? Yeah. Well, and this is a complicated conversation, and I would say, let me begin it with, with, with saying this. The most important question in mixing, in mastering, in recording, in writing, you name it, is this. Why do humans like music? Let me say it one more time. Why do humans like music? And the answer to that question is, I don't freaking know. <laughs> I don't have any idea why humans like music. Why, when I listened to Bob Dylan the other day, his the Free Will and Bob Dil Dylan record, 
why when I listen to that record do I get goosebumps and get like weepy? What the heck is happening there? I don't have any idea. It doesn't make any sense. It seems like kind of lame and fruity or something that I would get emotional like listening to like a recording of some guy in a room by himself. That's weird. It's self-help in another way. Yeah, man. So I, I think it all comes back to that. Why do humans like music? And I think the most important thing to embrace in this conversation of what is mastering, why master, why hire a mastering engineer, et cetera, gets down to this weird question of why do humans like music? We don't know. And a good mastering engineer, in my opinion, you can measure their results with only one thing, and that's the number of goosebumps on your left arm when you listen to their work. Specifically your left? Specifically your left. It's got to be your left. Your right doesn't count. It's got to be your left below the elbow, (laughs) between the wrist. So when you listen to a song, whatever um, engages you more emotionally is better. That's it. There's not like, oh, so this one's 13 lefts and that one's 14.2. None of this stuff matters except in the service of goosebumps. And that's the most important thing. And a good mastering engineer has some sort of ability to make a song more goosebumpy. And so, yeah, there's EQ, yeah, there's compression. But in my opinion, a lot of it is a good mastering engineer knows when to stop doing those things. He or she does just enough. And then they get to the point of peak awesomeness, peak goosebumps, and they stop being like, well, I'm going to put an exciter and a BBE Sonic Maximizer on this. <laughs> and then, oh, oh, two less goosebumps. Oh, three less goosebumps. At, at that point, like, it, it's really difficult to stop. It's really difficult to have the, the, the ability to know when enough is enough and when you've got it as awesome as you possibly can. And that... Um, it's almost like a type of emotional intelligence, much less than like a scientific or a technical intelligence that I think makes a good mastering engineer a good mastering engineer. So yeah, on on one level, you hit the nail on the head that pretty much everybody has access to basically the same tools a mastering engineer has. There's definitely like some crazy voodoo technology stuff here of like, it takes a certain type of audio engineer to really be able to kick ass with a multi-band compressor on the master bus. There's just like, you know, how many different possible settings can you come up with with something like, you know, the Waves, you know, Lin, yeah. Lin MB. I mean, like literally millions of possible combinations of settings just from that one plugin. So yeah, there's some there's some technology there. Yeah, there's some knowledge. Yeah, there's some science. But everything, and this is what I'm driving at, is the whole goosebumps thing is about making better art. Everything you do as a mastering engineer is in the service of making better art. And when you have somebody that's mastered, you know, tens of thousands of songs or thousands of songs, they're going to probably make art better than someone who's made hundreds of songs. So Very true. Yeah, yeah, there's this level of like technical expertise, but ultimately like and gear, but ultimately like it's not uncommon to find someone that has like, you know, a hundred thousand dollars worth of gear that's not very good at mastering. Yeah, the it's gear like, doesn't make you good. Yeah, it doesn't make you good. It doesn't help you make more goosebumps. Making, oh, my voice cracked there. It doesn't help <laughs> you make more goosebumps. What helps you make more goosebumps is basically like emotional maturity, the ability to be like, I'm going to stop. There's a little voice in the back of my head, like my conscience that tells me like, you know, when I should stop yelling at my wife or when I should, you know, help the old lady across the street who fell on her driveway 
that like compulsion also tells you that's enough, Chris. Stop messing with their with how their song sounds. And that discipline to stop, I think, is much more important than like. Well, I got um um um. I have seventeen different types of dither, well, which I can apply to this master. I have chosen uh, number fourteen <laughs> because of uh, maximum uh, dynamic uh, range copulation. Blah blah blah. Like all that stuff. It only helps if it's in the service of more goosebumps. For sure, I love that. That that's a great way of putting it. I always say, like, when Thanks, it comes man. to mixing, your job is to create that emotional attachment to the listener. And yeah. if you don't do that, you failed. It yeah. does. It doesn't matter if the mix kind of sucks, but like that emotional attachment's still there. Like that. That ultimately rules. Amen. Well, in case in point, dude, go listen to anything from Motown in the early '60s. I was just about to say that. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, that's amazing. Yeah. So go listen to My Girl. Classic song from The Temptations, one of the greatest songs of all time. The mix is so bad. It's terrible. It's like grating and harsh and overly bright and exhausting to listen to, but damn, is that a good song. There's one of those mixes. I don't know if it's My Girl. It might be one of the other Temptations songs, but there is this like woodblock hit that's in the middle of the song and it's like Shut. it's like 30 db louder than everything yeah. else in the mix and every time i hear it i'm like how the hell did that slip but i'm like you know what in the end it doesn't matter like <laughs> this song is yeah. still an amazing song like are you talking about the uh shotgun get him for a run now maybe i i, I thought of that or like the, the way you do the things you do or something like that it's oh, one of yeah. those songs well, there's like yeah it's something that just jumps right out they're all so bad but they're all so good because Barry Gordy for whatever reason he knew how to make goosebumps dude yeah. and like that magic was incredible so side note um about 12 years ago my wife and I were driving we were going to go on vacation up in the pinky finger of Michigan and so we drove through Detroit and I had heard that you could literally tour Hitsville USA where they recorded more number 1 hits than any other room on earth it's amazing and 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 side note more number one hits in a racist, toxic, white supremacist society as a bunch of African-Americans in Detroit. Freaking amazing. Coolest thing ever. And it was one of the most like amazing trips of my life because we, we got in, um, like we waited in line. We were the only white people there. It was like hundreds. Of, it was like this massive African-American like family reunion. And so we get into the, the snake pit which is the room they recorded all this in. And uh, it was like the highlight of my life. So the <laughs> the tour guide's like, all right, well, we're going to get, you know, we need you know, like four guys to sing background on My Girl, and we need one guy to sing lead. We're going we're gonna to do like a sing-along in the room. And so they get these four, you know, old African-American dudes, and they're like, all right, who, who else can sing? Who can sing lead? And this lady... This like older African American lady looks over me and she says, she says to the whole crowd, that white boy looks like he can sing. <laughs> and I was like, oh God, here we go. And so it was like one of the most, one of the greatest moments because I was like, this is it. Like, this is magic. I'm just going to lean into this. And so they start singing the background of my girl. And I just like lock eyes with my wife and I just let it belt like from the, the top of my lungs. And it was just so fun. Because this was this is an area that like this I love where this conversation is going with Motown because they have overcome more technical issues in their songs like their recordings are just absolutely awful yeah and but they're this but the quality of the songs how much people love them 
is just massively outsizes the quality of the mix. Now, I'm not saying we should intentionally make bad recordings, but we shouldn't get so distracted by fidelity that we end up crushing the soul of the song. And who's to say that like a better sounding version of My Girl would have been a a better hit? There was some weird magic that they dialed in, that they focused on the right things, and there's a lot more to learn from that then uh, here's how you uh, uh, set the attack on a limiter. uh, (laughs) You know? So, yeah, I I love that. I was talking to, who was that I was talking to yesterday? Mark Eckert. Uh, We had this guy Mark Eckert on the show yesterday on the podcast. We haven't released it yet. It's coming out pretty soon. But he mentioned about there's nothing more powerful than a song. The song rules all. And everything else is almost irrelevant. Um, I bet someday... There's going to be a number one smash hit on the radio that some kid recorded on his iPhone by himself. The song's just going to be that good, and no one's going to care that it sounds like trash. It's just that good. And I think for us as audio engineers, we like to convince ourselves that the fidelity is the king, is not. Amen. Amen, brother. <laughs> yeah, that, that, so I also did the Motown tour as well. And like, oh, cool. it, it's it's the coolest place. And when you get into like the snake pit, like you said, it's you look around and you're like, this is this is it? Like, this is where they made all these hits? Like, it's, it a, it's like an empty, <laughs> shitty garage. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you just have like a couple of mics hanging from the ceiling. And we get so fixated on all of this gear and we need to like multi-mic everything and have like the yeah. most expensive compressor and blah, blah, blah. And it's like... No, like they, at the end of the day, like that was all like the song was the king, and it didn't yeah. matter what gear they had. They they probably had the budgets to to add more mics if they wanted, but they yeah. didn't. You know. Well, and what's so cool about it is they made a lot of stuff. Yeah. So like I'm sure you saw this too, but when you, they gave you the tour of the upstairs in Hitsville, the reverb chamber, the reverb oh chamber. Oh my god, dude! <laughs> so like back to what we were just saying about uh, I think it's called shotgun or shotgun wedding or something like that I forget the name of the song but the beginning of the song is bang shotgun get him before we run now and so when you're walking through the upstairs of the studio there's an attic access panel that's been removed like a normal house attic access and what they did is they hired this 18 19 year old kid and he went up in the attic with a bunch of plaster and he plastered everything so every every surface in that attic is smooth and they put a bullhorn on one side of the attic and a microphone on the other side of the attic. And when they wanted to reverb, they would send signal from the board with an aux to the bullhorn. And they used another channel on the mixing board as the return, which was the microphone in the attic. And it was so crazy to like, I'll never forget, I walked up to that attic access, reached my hands in the air and clapped and heard that reverb and was like, oh man! That is it. That, that is the sound. That was sound. exactly my experience. It's the most surreal oh. thing because that that is that Motown sound. Like yeah, in a oh, clap, f- yeah. for sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Literally, like that moment of just like, oh gosh, <laughs> it's like the most nerdy audio thing in the world. But it's not fidelity. Like it's not a clean, gorgeous, like sparkly. No, it's just it's distinctive. It's memorable. And that might be honestly. This is an interesting place to take this conversation. That might be one of the things that made Motown so successful is bet they had something better than fidelity. They were distinctive. When a Motown song came on the radio, you know it's a Motown song even if you've never heard the record before. 
Absolutely. Even if you've never heard that song, you're immediately like, oh, this has got to be Motown because nothing sounds like this. So to that end, I think there's almost an argument to focus more on being distinct and instantly recognizable, having a, 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 a swag, if you will, that people are like, oh, that's, that's Mike's record. Yeah. That sounds like a Mike record. So if you've got something like that, that might there might be more buried in the secrets of what is a hit record, what makes a, a hit in that distinctive, like, sort of weirdness, you know? Mm-hmm. I don't know, man. This is all, like, we're, this is mystical yeah. stuff that we're talking about. It's, like, mysteries that, like, anyone that's like, well, I can answer that question for you. I'm like, oh, you're full of crap. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody knows. Like, it's all mysteries. Yeah, for sure. So then let me let me take a step back from that conversation then and ask you, what is your current studio setup like these days? Are you mainly in the box? Do you have a bunch of analog gear? Does that yeah. matter to you anymore, Good having question. analog gear? So, no, I'm not really an analog gear guy. You know, for me, um, I'm aware that most of the time when you get a project, some corners were cut at the mixing stage or the production stage or whatever. And as a result, I think that the recallability of the mix and the recallability of the master is more important than almost anything else because you want to be able to have the artist say, oh, man, can we turn the vocal up a little bit? Yeah, sure. Um, Send me a new mix. I'll have it for you later today. That sort of speed to me seems more important than like, then, then I think the main point of the analog gear is to impress people. It's 100%. To like, yeah, it's to post pictures on Instagram. It's to have people come over to the studio and be like, oh, gosh, you must know what you're doing You're because you're really in debt. <laughs> like, you've really gone all out. So I typically stay in the box. I very rarely, really, I haven't, it's been a pretty long time since I've done anything out of the box. But for me, I think mastering is mostly about making the right decision, mostly about stopping when you've done enough and then mostly about having the flexibility to make quick changes. So for me, um, I love being in the box. My fantasy that I'm working on right now is like, I've got a cool setup here. I've got like, uh, you know, Bowers and Wilkins speakers and a really kick-ass vintage tube amp that drives them and the Crane Song Avocets, the same front end everybody on, on in the world has that's mastering for, uh, full-time. Sounds great. It's awesome. But my fantasy... Um, and there's a couple guys that have done this um, as well. My fantasy is to eventually be headphone only. Wow. Is to be the headphone mastering or a headphone mastering guy because there's other guys. And the big thing for me there um, is, one, I'm obsessed with headphones. They're all, they've always been one of my favorite items on earth because I grew up in a, a pretty dysfunctional family. And headphones were like this instant cave that you could have privacy in and go into your own world and escape. So I have a really um, intense emotional attachment to headphones. So it feels more natural to me in some ways to work with headphones, but I'm not there yet. Um, It's like anything else. You know, you get new monitors, it takes a while to get used to them. You know, you get a new DAW, it takes a while to get used to it. I am in the process of trying to get used to mastering on headphones. Um, I've been using uh, Sonarworks, and uh, they sent me these Sennheiser 650s that they had calibrated, um, it's one of the benefits of having a podcast. You get lots of like free stuff. <laughs> uh, but they sent me these 650s, and it's been, uh, for the first time, I've been like, oh, yeah, I could master with headphones. I know what I'm doing. Sonarworks is a crazy software. I actually just got it like last week and was starting to mess nuts. around with it, and it's crazy. 
Yeah. So, and for those of you guys that don't know about it, SonarWorks is like, there's a couple different types of it. The cheapest kind is like you plug in a pair of headphones, you tell SonarWorks what headphones you're using, and you route all your audio to this program, and it corrects the EQ curve of the headphones. So you get like ruler flat frequency response. And even with like these custom ones that they calibrated, they like calibrate the difference between drivers. So like there's a little bit of difference between like, you know, frequency, there's like a half a dB more 5K in the left driver than there is in the right driver. And it equals all that out. And when I first got this pair of headphones from Sonoworks, shout out, Lee, thank you so much. Um, when I first got this stuff, it was like, whoa, okay. <laughs> that was the push I needed to have more confidence when I'm mastering with headphones. Because my biggest problem when I'm, when I'm working with headphones is sometimes you get in this like weird, like disoriented state because like you your ears are covered and yeah suddenly, you don't hear the rest of the world around you yeah it it can get disorienting and all of a sudden you're like what's my name and, and who am I which way's up like where like <laughs> it can get really disorienting and SonarWorks has really helped uh me figure that out so I'm I would say I'm like ninety percent of the way there um, I have not been brave enough to like take a laptop on the road for a long period of time and just work for my clients with headphones, but that's the dream. Is it someday uh, when I feel like I'm ready, I, w- I want to like kill all the sacred cows and be like, yeah, I master your record on really fancy headphones, a really fancy converter, a really fancy headphone amp, and my MacBook. Yep, and do a good job. Because that'll be obviously yeah. that'll be the thing and people will be like, really? Headphones mastering? Well, but- that's the thing is in, in rock, it's a little less common, but in other genres, this is, there are hits like, that have been smash hits on the radio that have been J. Cole stuff, yeah. for example. J. Cole stuff mastered on in-ear headphones. Whoa, cool. Yeah. Amazing. It's a brave new world. Yep, for sure. I'd love to talk a little bit about your website because obviously that's yeah. been a major source of driving customers to your business. And, and um, I think there's a lot of people out there, myself included, who like have this idea of, when you want to make a presence for yourself online, you build yourself a website and you put your bio on there, you put some samples of your audio on there, and a lot of people just let it sit expecting this kind of, if you build it, they will come kind of idea. Yeah. And you have managed to figure out a way of driving a ton of traffic and and converting a lot of customers through your website. I think that's amazing. So I was wondering if you can go into a little bit of detail on how you went about doing that and drove the traffic to it. I know you kind of mentioned yeah. ads earlier. Yeah. Well, to call a spade a spade, I feel really lucky and blessed and that I happen to be good at it, at, at least three things. Um, I think in today's environment in music, if you're only good at one thing, you're going to have a really hard time running a business. I lucked out in that I am primarily a, a learner and a problem solver. That's what I enjoy doing the most more than anything. Um, so that makes me a good mastering engineer. At least it helps a lot. Um, that makes me a good marketer, or at least it helps a lot. And that makes me really good at building systems, or at least it helps a lot. So for me, um, I lucked out in that I was good at mastering in the first place. There was like some natural ability there. And, and, um, for whatever reason, I, I've, I've good ears. And that had been the case, like, since I was a kid, like I could, you know, uh, as a piano student, um, I'm going to brag a little bit. I, I hate doing that, but I think this is important to recognize or important, excuse me, to 
to explain, like as a piano student, as a kid, we would play this game. We were Suzuki method. So it's ear training. And the game would be like, I'm going to play either five or four or three notes from a song. And then you have to tell me what song it is just from those few notes. And for whatever reason, I could consistently identify all the songs that contained two note combinations. <laughs> and so this was like weird. And I, I like was dropped as a baby. I fell down the stairs and hit my head. And maybe this has something to do with it. <laughs> but um, true story, fell down the stairs, passed out, woke up. It was crazy. It was like nine months old. I remember it like it was yesterday, which is creepy, really weird. Psychology. I should go see a shrink probably about this. <laughs> and then but, that moment made your hearing infinitely it, better. It was like that movie Rookie of the Year with Henry Rowling. Exactly. <laughs> oh, it's like one of the most underrated movies ever. <laughs> when he throws that pitch, when he catches the ball and throws it back, and oh, we got more talent in the stands than we get on the field today. Oh, I love that movie. I need to watch that with my kids. <laughs> but this is a real thing. Like, there are um, people who have sustained brain injuries and then they have more skill than they did before. Maybe that happened to me. Maybe it didn't. I don't know. Anyways, long story short, I've got good ears. I've got like some taste, some talent, or whatever you want to call that there. Thank God. Um, I, I can't take any credit for that. I, I won the lottery there. Um, but the the most important thing, I think, from a website standpoint, to really get to your question here, was I think the mistake that most people make in the audio business is they look around at what everyone else is doing and they copy it. And they say, oh, this must be the normal thing to do. Uh, I'm going to copy it. And we're notorious for this. So case in point, I know like I'm going to like get crucified here, but like NS10s, do you know Hate what? Them. Like, they're awful. Oh, God, they're so, they're so bad. They're not even studio monitors. They're cheap like consumer speakers from the 1970s, and they're, just, they're not good. But, but one guy had a hit mixing an NS10s, and then everybody was like, oh, well, that must have been the secret. I'll get NS10s. And, like, not that you can't do a great mix on NS10s, but, like, this, like, why, why would you see the NS10 and say, oh, yeah, that's, that's the secret. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to go with lo-fi speakers for <laughs> Because mixing. now CLA is out there saying they're the sound of hits, or he's oh, the sound good. of hits. <laughs> Gracious. Yeah. So, don't get me started there. So, yeah. So, like, we're a copycat industry. As much as we would love to believe that we're this rock and roll, do your own thing. And, like, that's the nature of rock and roll. It's like, I do what I want. I'm different. And I embraced it. And I think for the website thing, most people make the mistake of, like, I'm going to make my website look like all my competitors. Newsflash, you can't build a business by copying your competitors. If, if you do, your only chance at building a business is to execute much better than they can. And if you look at somebody that's 15 years ahead of you and you copy what they're doing, they have 15 years of experience. Unless you're a flipping genius, you're not going to out-execute them. The easiest way to do something that will work on a website is to do something that nobody else is doing. Stand out. Be unique. Do what Motown did. Have mixes that sound kind of weird. I'm not saying that that's the, that was their secret, but like they were distinctive. If your website isn't distinctive, no one's going to remember you. You're just going to, they're going to be like, uh, I went on like five mixing websites today. Uh, and they can't even like think of what your name is. They can't yeah. think of like, they can't even describe what made you unique. So like you can compete on price, you can compete on speed, you can compete on quality, you can compete on like some other weird X factor of like, you know, we'll record you remotely over video chat or we'll, um, 
you send us your mix with your plugins on it, and we'll take it from there. There's all sorts of things you can do to be unique. Mm-hmm. And if you want a website that converts, you have to do something nobody else is doing. And so that's sort of the frustrating part of like me giving out business information on the, the podcast, on the Six Figure Home Studio podcast, is ultimately you have to differentiate. Mm-hmm. That's the key. You have to do something that's like, whoa, cool. I've never seen that before. Bookmark. <laughs> that's the key. So for me, it's not that I did any particular one, th- any one thing particularly well. It's that I did at least one thing really, really differently. And to this day, like there's other people that do the before and after thing live, but it's not kind of as cool as on my website. It looks like this weird analog piece of gear and it feels like a toy. Like you're playing with it and you get to experiment and people love that. And as a result, like um, one of the best things to do when you have a website is to get Google Analytics set up on it so that you can see like how many people are on it, how long they're staying, where they're going. Like on my Google Analytics, people typically hang out on my website for I think it's three and a half to four minutes depending on the time of the year. Uh, that's the average time on site. And that is a monster amount of time to see on Google Analytics. But it's mostly because like that before and after machine is yeah, fun people to are play listening with. to it. Yeah. Yeah. So people are spending a lot of time goofing around with that machine and getting a feel for is this somebody I want to work with? So yeah, so to bring it home, like the most important thing is to do something unique, to do yeah. something that's like surprising and singular. And think about it. Think of all your favorite bands you've ever listened to. Like, nobody's a gigantic, no offense to anybody, no one's a gigantic, like, Puddle of Mud fan. <laughs> because Puddle of Mud sounds like Creed, and it sounds like Nickelback, and it's it's not distinctive. Yeah. So all your favorite bands are totally singular. They're totally weird. And if that's not the case, um, I don't know that we can be friends, but <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But But everything, think about everything that you like. It's bizarre. Yeah, it's unique. It stands out. So I'm drinking a can of of Pomplamoose Lacroix right now. Um, huge fan. Who would have ever thought ten years ago that one of the number one selling beverages in the United States would be sparkly water with just a little bit of grapefruit oil in it and no sugar? Weird. It's a very strange beverage, but because it is, it stands out in a crowd. And I think that's the most important thing. You know, any of you audio engineers that are listening, and any of you musicians that are that are listening, can take home too, is that if if it's really easy to define your genre, um, it's probably not going to go super well for you. Yeah. You know, the all the best acts ever were like had invented a genre in some way, shape, or form. And you look at even like a couple years ago, Mumford and Sons exploded. What the heck is Mumford and Sons? Is it bluegrass? No. Is it like indie rock? No. Is it like folk? No. Like, it's it's really hard to define. Adele, same, you know, like, mm-hmm. what the heck is Adele? Is it R&B? No. Is it pop? No. no. <laughs> like, I don't know what it is. And it, it's as a result, another great example, you know, one of the most popular bands in the world, 21 Pilots. What on earth is 21 Pilots? It, it's Yeah, it's all over it the place. It's all over. Is it pop? Is it rap? I don't, I don't really completely know what it is there's a humility Mm -hmm. it's like there's some rap and there's some pop but there's a humility to their music and uh it kills it for them so i think a a big part of this and this is true across all art and across all business is that only the unique ones rise to the top absolutely and it's one thing to have that differentiating factor like you said though you could have put that before and after player on your website but 
if no one went to your website, it wouldn't have mattered. So this is true. so then, this is true. how do you get people to check out your website? You, you mentioned ads, but is that the only way? No. So, um, so my story is I got the website up and running. I found somebody who could build it for me, and I lucked out. This was a just a stroke of luck that one of the best um, user interf- interface designers around happened to be a friend of mine. And so he builds websites that people interact with, they play with, it makes it a toy. I was really lucky that he knew how he, he, that he was able to figure out how to build this. Um, and then I was really lucky that I'm a complete nerd and got completely OCD about learning how to run paid ads on Google. At the time, there were not many people competing in the mastering space for paid ads. And so I went in, learned a bunch of stuff, and crushed it. And then a, a later on, I would, you know, every couple of years, I would redefine how I was marketing myself and where I was marketing myself, and I would crush it. And again and again, um, back to what I said before, there's not like a one-size-fits-all for marketing. You have to do it in a unique way, in a unique space. There's not like, well, if you're mastering, you just need to run this type of ad. If I give that advice out and every mastering engineer begins to take it, it will no longer work for any mastering engineers. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Well, I was going to ask about that. Like, what do you suggest people do in terms of their ad copy to differentiate mm. themselves? Because I'm sure it's not enough to just say like, "Hey, I'm a, I'm Mike. I'm a mastering engineer from Toronto. Check out my studio. Click here." Like, totally. Probably not going to get many hits. Yeah. Well, the first thing you have to do is you have to have some kind of lead magnet. And so for me, my lead magnet is I'll master one song for free for any artist. And if you're a mix engineer or producer, I'll master one song for free for all of your artists. So this sort of like, hey, come here, give me a try. You can get something for free. There's no cost to you. It's no risk. There's only potential upside for the customer. So figuring out something like that for whatever the business is, is an easy way to get attention. And especially if you are putting that message out in the right context. So like case in point, right now, I'm marketing. Like I'm on an audio web, I'm on an audio podcast and I'm talking about getting a free mastering sample. And at least some of you are like, hmm, interesting. (laughs) But like at the same time, I'm not trying to market. I'm just trying to help people. And I think that's a, that's a big, let me massively shift this conversation. Sure. Is that you have to help people. If you are in audio and you're thinking, well, I just want to like be a professional audio engineer so my mom uh, will stop judging me. Like if that's your driving motivation and it's about you, it's about you getting paid, quote unquote, what you're worth, it ain't going to work. If you're out there trying to help as many people as you possibly can, you're going to win. And like you're going to, the side effect of helping people is success. Absolutely. So that's huge. And so for me, I was like, hey, people don't understand what mastering is. I'm going to help them understand with my player. And then I'm going to help them understand what mastering can do for them by giving them a free sample. And probably I'm going to call them while I'm working on their sample and talk to them about their mix and give them free mixing advice. If they decide to book a mastering project with me, I'll give them free mixing advice. And it helps them turn out a better product. And the more you help people, the better your business is going to, is going to go. And I think that's probably the biggest misconception I see and like all this, like, well, how do you market? Well, how do you master? Well, how do you, all, all of these things all come back to how do you help the most people? And you can't help that many people by being like everyone else. You have to offer unique help. That's the way you help the most people. But essentially like business, 
the marketplace, capitalism, whatever you want to call it, is a race. And he or she that helps the most people the most wins. And like I'm a student of history. I read business history books all the time. That's the case in every successful business. So case in point, um, John D. Rockefeller. You know, I say that name and immediately people are like, oh, he must have been a villain. Oh, man. It's too bad that Scooby-Doo and those kids weren't around back then because they would have caught him <laughs> pretending to be the monster. And I would have got away with it, too, if it wasn't for you pesky kids. Like this this idea of like him as a villain, and he wasn't perfect. He was definitely really gross in some ways. But let me walk you through his business. I think this is helpful for any of us in music, any of us in audio. John D. Rockefeller was an accountant, basically. He did people's books, and he figured out a pain point. Uh, a, a problem that many people in our country had, especially the masses, especially the poor, and that was that if you wanted to stay up after dark, you, you didn't want to buy candles because candles are really expensive. So what people would do is they would buy a they'd buy whale oil, and whale oil is exactly what it sounds like. Somebody went out on a boat and killed a flipping whale, and then like took their fat and like oil from their glands and stuff, and then sold it in jars, and then you'd put it in a lamp and you'd light the wick. And then you could read at night. You could hang out with your your spouse. You could hang out with your kids. You could have a conversation after dark. Massive, massive life improvement to be able to stay up after dark, right? There's a catch. A whale oil lamp is, one, extremely expensive, and two, explosive. So you'd be like reading Junior, you know, his good night story, and all of a sudden his nightlight turns into a Mokolov cocktail. House burns down, everybody dies. Not a great product. <laughs> John D. Rockefeller saw this, and he was up in Cleveland, Ohio, and he figured out, hey, there's this really weird black stuff that comes out of the ground in some places in Cleveland, Ohio, called oil. And a buddy of mine is a scientist, and he has figured out how to distill kerosene from the oil. And like, so oil is like made up of many different parts, gasoline, uh, turpentine, kerosene like there's all these different parts and depending on how you process it you get different things out of it so like one of the side effects of making kerosene was that you also make gasoline but nobody needed gasoline back then so like dumped it in the rivers and stuff like that <laughs> not 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 a nice thing to do but kerosene is much better than whale oil if you want to read at night it's much better mm-hmm. to put in your in your lamp because one uh it's not explosive in the same way whale oil was and two, John D. Rockefeller said, I'm going to charge 10% of what the cost of whale oil is for kerosene. And anybody, like if, if you can make it and make a profit doing that, guess what happens? Everybody uses kerosene. If you're like at church the next day or at a, at a bar or coffee shop, yeah, my, well, my wife started buying this kerosene and we can stay up to all hours having delightful conversations and reading inspiring novels. And so like everybody bought it and John... D. Rockefeller became the richest person that's ever lived. Like six or seven or eight times richer than Bezos is now. Jeff Bezos, that Amazon guy. He was 3% of the United States GDP. So like for you nerds out there, try to wrap your mind around what that means. It's insanely rich. But he got rich by helping the most people the most. That's business. Yeah. And for anybody that's trying to make a living in audio, it cannot be about your value, about how much you're quote unquote worth. It has to be about how do you help the most people the most. And when you do that, when you make an impact, when you change the world, when you help a lot of people, the side effect is that you will also make money. You're gonna, that's, that's the easy part. 
The hard part is figuring out how do you help the most people the most. Yeah. Well, I, I love what you're doing with the free sample and all that stuff. I think it's it's very different than most people. And I'm sure there's people listening Thanks, to this man. right now that are thinking like, well, I'm not a mastering engineer and like mixing is more involved and takes longer to do than mastering. It does. So like what tips would you give for someone who's maybe looking to focus more on the mixing side or like any any ideas that, I mean, maybe they're all secret ideas yeah. you want to- Oh, no, no. I'll, I'll give away all of them. Sure. Um, yeah. So I would say first of let me just kind of like limit myself to three tips here or else I'll keep going for the rest of the day. I would say one, and if any of you guys listen to the Six Figure Home Studio podcast, this is all we talk about, this sort of stuff all the time. So check it out. It's available where all podcasts are, are sold. No, it's free. <laughs> it's free. <laughs> so free. you can get it anywhere. And um, I will vouch for his podcast. The Six Figure Home Studio podcast is amazing. It, it's thanks, been man. definitely very life-changing for me and, and definitely very beneficial to my business as well. So well, I'm glad everyone should listen to it. Thanks, dude. Well, yeah. So uh, top three tips for mi- people that are trying to mix for a living. I'd say one, uh, use a CRM. A CRM is Customer Relationship Management Software. And basically... It's kind of like an email application, except it's got really fancy contact information in it. So you can look at it, and it integrates with like how much you've made from each project and as well as how much each project you're trying to win can be worth. So no one's a real grown-up, really, period, and no one's going to remember to follow up um, and keep in contact with their potential customers and their previous customers. When you have a, a CRM, I use something called Close.io, but there's many out there. HubSpot, uh, Pipedrive. Uh, yeah, I use Salesforce. one called Sales, Salesflare. Yeah, Salesflare, Salesforce. There's a whole bunch of different ones out there. So look around. Uh, HubSpot's kind of the easiest intro one because it's free, at least at, at first. Um, but you basically import all your leads, people that might want to work with you, and you begin to consistently keep in contact with them. Because think about it. If a real grown-up ran an audio business, wouldn't they stay in touch with all their potential customers? Yeah, of course they would. Mm-hmm. And of course that's going to help your sales. The other thing um, is that the CRM is really helpful is following up with past customers to be like, oh, it's been six months since I've talked to Joe. Joe's the biggest customer I've ever had. Maybe you should contact him. <laughs> so a CRM is really, really helpful for that. Um, so I would say that for sure. Um, another thing that I think is really helpful is to keep in mind that as a mix engineer, you can kind of measure your success by the number of revision requests that you get. And so like the best mix engineer in the world never gets any revision requests, right? That's the dream anyways. And that's challenging, but you can build systems that can dramatically cut down on revision requests. And one of, I think, the easiest, most simple systems to use is to remind your artist constantly, hey, when you're checking these mixes, check them on at least five sets of speakers at both high and low volume. So on my website, when you go to download a master, this like little pop-up comes up and says, hey, make sure you check outside of the studio on five sets of speakers, both high and low volume. And then your options are, okay, I read this, and okay, I read this twice. Those are the <laughs> only two ways to close that, that thing. And by getting people to think about um, this important idea that a great mix and a great master sounds good everywhere, and a bad mix or a bad master only sounds great in the place it was mixed or mastered. So, like, if it sounds awesome in your studio, who cares? If it sounds awesome everywhere, holy crap, dude, you got the skills. And so reminding artists of that can really help cut down revisions. 
because revisions will typically, uh, most artists don't know anything about this stuff. So they're going to throw on their, their iPod headphones or they're going to like, worst case scenario, listen on their iPhone speakers and then offer you feedback on how to improve said mixes. That's not good. So I think like creating some systems around revisions is really, really helpful. Even if it's just as simple as like, hey, click this OK button that you're going to listen to this on more than one set of speakers. So anyways, yeah, so I would say that's kind of the, the second tip. And third tip, I would say one of the things that I notice the most with mix engineers that drives them into the ground is that they feel guilty for choosing this line of work. Mom and dad don't approve of you being in audio. Mom and dad don't approve of you being in music. And as a result, um, there's a guilt that comes with that. And the way that most audio engineers overcome that guilt is by trying to prove that at least they're a hard worker. And they're like, well, you know, I work 79 hours a week every week. That's great. But like you're doing that. You, You can't do that in audio because your ears don't work that way. Your ears are naturally like adapted, evolved, whatever, to to cover up monotonous sounds so that if a saber-toothed tiger sneaks up on you a thousand years ago, that you hear it, even though you're next to a waterfall. So your ear tunes out things that you've listened to for a long period of time. It's just how our ears work. And as your ears tune that stuff out, you start to adjust the mix to compensate for that. So my, my kind of third piece of advice here is do not mix for 10 hours per day. Don't even mix for more than an hour in a row. Take 10 minutes off every hour. Rest. Go do something you enjoy. Get your pep back in your step. Get your motivation back. Make sure you're in an emotionally healthy spot because your job isn't to work long hours. Your job is to make the right decisions the first time. Absolutely. So, man, taking that time to like get yourself in a healthy spot, whether that's exercise, whether that's like I'm going to go play video games for 10 minutes for every hour that I mix, like that's, that's going to help you be better to just like be able to sit down because here's the thing. People judge your work based on the first 10 seconds of the song that they hear. Not, oh, I've been listening to your song for the past 74 hours and I have come to a conclusion about <laughs> your audio fidelity. It is fantastic. Way to go. That's not how people work. It's about that first impression and you need to remove yourself so that you have lots of experience, quote unquote, hearing your work for the first time. Because it's that first listen that like, oh, gosh, I can't wait to listen to the rest of this song. That reaction is what drives more than anything else, I think. It's that like, and you, back to my girl. Yep. Doon, 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 doon. I'm hooked. As soon as like they, they, they repeat that Those first bar, two notes. <laughs> yeah. They, 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 they add, I'm not a music, music theory guy, but it's like that third bar comes in and you're like, oh, gosh, this is great. I want to I, I hear this whole song. And when you're making mixes, and the same goes true for masters, it should people should want to finish listening to it. And it's not like it doesn't matter if like it's the greatest ending of a song ever, or like the buildup is the greatest ending of the song ever, because if the first ten seconds aren't amazing and they don't sound great, no one's going to listen to the the end of it. The A and R guy's not going to listen to it. The DJ's not going to listen to it. And everyone that's flipping through uh, playlists on Spotify is just going to hit skip if they don't love the first ten seconds. Mm-hmm. So I would say like it's all about that first impression. And mix engineers tend to really fixate on like they kind of miss the, the trees for the forest, if you will. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. Yeah. 
So I know you're a big fan of Tim Ferriss and obviously the four hour work week, which we talked about earlier. And you've talked about kind of implementing these kind of automations and, and uh, kind of efficiencies within your website and, and yeah. your business. And we talked about the mix revisions and the CRM, all that kind of stuff. In what other ways do you implement that into building your website to work for you as opposed to just like creating work for you? Oh, yeah. Well, I, uh, there's a, a good tip on this is that I my website's built in WordPress. Um, you know, I'm not saying everybody should drop Wix or Squarespace and do WordPress, but I love WordPress. And WordPress has a plugin called Gravity Forms. Gravity Forms is a form creation plugin, and you can basically make really uh, intricate forms that have logic baked into them. So, like, one of the questions, like, when you go to book a project with me, you make a payment, um, and then it takes you to this form. It's really easy to fill out, and then it takes you to the upload page. And the form asks like really basic questions like rate your mix on a scale of one to 10. And if like you rate your mix of five, then like maybe a little blurb will pop up and be like, wow, sounds like you really don't like your mix. What do you like the least about your mix? Another question is, uh, did you mix this yourself or did someone else mix this? And based on if you say I mix this myself, the next questions on the form are totally different than if somebody else mixed it for you. So like one of the questions, if you selected somebody else mixed this, there's a question that's like, have you listened to their mixes before you're uploading them to mastering? Because <laughs> um, believe it or not, that, that is an it issue happens. I run into sometimes where like the artists will get mad and I'll be like, this doesn't sound the right way. And I'll be like, okay, uh, do you want it to sound more like the mixes? Well, I don't know. I don't know what the mixes sound like. You know, So like those, the, having a form like that lets you do all this research without any extra effort. And you know, another one of the questions, one of the best questions I have in my form is if there's more than one song in a project, there's a question that shows up and says, um, please label your tracks in their, their track order number. So 01 song name dot wave, 02 song name dot wave, et cetera. Everybody does that when they upload. So all I have to do when I get their files is drop it into the program I'm mastering in and they order automatically one through whatever 10 or 12 or 15 or whatever. And there's no like, oh, is this song? Track number five? Oh, let me look at the... Oh, wait. He put the song name, not the file name. I'm not sure which song this is. So there's all this, like, crap that you got to go through. And for mix engineers, same thing. Of, like, if someone's sending you stems, and the stems labeled, like, FFF4279, and you're like, what, what, what is this? Oh, this sounds like it might be a background vocal on the fourth chorus. Okay, let me change... It's a lot of extra work to just get oriented. Yeah. So as far as automation goes, the, f the best place to get started with automation is at the very top. And the top is getting the information from the customer. So whether you're using Gravity Forms, whether you're using like the Google Forms is pretty cool as well, or whether you're using, uh, there's a bunch of other form creation plugins out there. But having some kind of form where when you sit down to work, there's no head scratching. You know what you need to do and where you need to go. And, you know, another example is like... Uh, uh, one of the questions on my upload form is like, is there a song from another artist that you used as a reference while mixing this? Copy and paste like a YouTube link or something below to suddenly like get a picture of like, oh, okay, okay, I see what they're going for. Cool. I can, I can, I can make, I can take this the rest of the way. So using a form, if you're not using forms, um, the size of your business, the maximum size of your business is like, I don't know, twenty, thirty thousand $30,000 per year. You're not going to break that like, that level until you start to have forms when people are uploading stuff to you that cuts out all the like 
the five emails back and forth about like, oh, I noticed there's two kick drums. Did you want those both in this song? No? Okay, cool. Good to know. Uh, which one did you want? Like there's just all <laughs> this back and forth that's so easy to automate. Where Even if it's just like you get an email from the form plugin with all the answers to their questions and it's all right there. That's amazing. I've definitely implemented a lot more of that into my business in the last year or so and have seen a drastic shift in the amount of work I can get done and the, the amount of back and forth that I've saved on emails. That's awesome, huge. man. Yeah. Way to go. That's like that's like the real grown-up work right there. <laughs> like it, it feels so good when you do that work because you're like, oh, I feel like a real adult right now. Yeah. Like, and when you first send it, you're like, I don't know if this is going to work. But then once it does, you're like, holy shit, that like – that just saved me so much time. Like, and I have all of this stuff documented and I can quickly reference it. And like, it, it's amazing. Totally. And the big kind of take home from that there is that when you did that work, Mike, the dollars per hour that you're making went up. Might've been a dollar, might've been $2, might've been $3. But when you cut work out of your day by automating it, the, uh, the dollars per hour that you make goes up. And mm-hmm. eventually it's just about how do I get all the other stuff that I could pay someone minimum wage to do for me, but I can't afford to pay anybody. How do you automate all that stuff so that your dollars per hour goes up so that you can keep making music for a living for the rest of your life? That's awesome. I love that. Well, I think that's a that's a good spot to wrap up. So if people want to learn more about you, how can they do that? Yeah, uh, check out chrisgrammastering.com. If you, uh, it's G-R-A-H-A-M, but if you just Google Chris Graham Mastering, I'm going to pop right up there. Um, so yeah, check that out. Check out the podcast, sixfigurehomestudiopodcast.com. That's like the best way to get to know me and to learn more. Um, the podcast, we've got like 65 episodes out right now. Um, and it's like, like it's exploding. Like we get 9% more downloads each month on average. And That's it's just awesome. been this bananas, like runaway viral thing. So yeah. And, and, and it's like, to me, this episode that we just did is like one of the most important ones that I've had on on oh. this show, like I, I think Thanks, that, like man. I mean that with all honesty, like in terms of the information that like anybody who's looking to get started, I think is going to learn a ton from this episode. So um, I could say that your podcast has definitely extrapolated everything we've talked about today and gone into much more Thanks, detail. Man. So people should definitely to listen to it. Well, it's been great hanging out with you. Yeah, man, man, this is awesome. I, I love it. I'd love to have you on at some point again and and go For deeper sure. with it. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, please do. So that was my interview with Chris Graham, and holy crap, there is so much good stuff in that episode. I highly recommend that you go back and listen again and really unpack everything that he said there, because, man, he dropped so much good stuff in there that if you just take a little bit of that and implement it into your business, I guarantee that you will see your businesses grow And if you're just getting started and you're not sure of how to get that first client, or maybe you've been doing it for a while and you're just trying to grow that business and get it bigger and get bigger, better clients, maybe make some more money, maybe quit your part-time job and go full-time with it, I think that you really need to take all of the things that he said in this episode and put them into practice. Like everything he said about differentiation and how to implement automation into your business, these things are huge. You have to get that going. And it'll make your life a lot easier and you'll be able to grow your business much faster and with ease. So once again, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. I'd love to have you back anytime. 
And for you, the listener, if this is your first time listening to this podcast or hearing about Master Your Mix, make sure to check out the website, MasterYourMix.com. And I'm currently giving away a free download. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It is a guide to using EQ and compression in your mixes. And the idea is to help you be able to quickly identify which areas of your mix need to be cut or boosted frequency-wise. And it also gives you some tips with using compression as well so that you can get better results faster. So once again, check that out. It's called The Ultimate Mixing Blueprint. It's available at MasterYourMix.com. Or if you want to go even more in-depth and learn all about my six-step workflow for completing mixes from beginning to end, my new book, The Mixing Mindset, is now available on Amazon.com. Or you can visit MasterYourMix.com forward slash Mixing Mindset book. And this book is the step-by-step formula for creating professional rock mixes from your home studio. And it goes into a lot of detail about the important questions that you need to ask yourself every step of the way throughout the mixing process. And I give you the different scenarios that you're going to face and how to process your tracks and add effects and use automation and all of that kind of stuff that you need to do in order to complete your mix and make it sound awesome. So once again, check that out too. It's called The Mixing Mindset. And it's available on Amazon, or you can find it by visiting MasterYourMix.com. So that's it for today, guys. Thank you so much for listening. I had a lot of fun on this episode, and I can't wait to talk to you in the next one. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Master Your Mix podcast. To have your questions answered, submit your questions to questions at MasterYourMix.com. Please go to iTunes and subscribe and leave a review. And for more information on how you can improve your mixes, visit MasterYourMix.com.